Welcome to the show. This week I sit down with Jim Roberts, better known as Dr. Fermento, a longtime Alaska craft beer columnist. If you want to know about Alaska craft beer, Jim's your guy. He and his wife came to Alaska in 1979, and he quickly started familiarizing himself with homebrewing and getting to know the local craft beer scene and the people involved in it. Fast forward to 1992, and Jim is the president of Anchorage's Great Northern Brewers Club. Fast forward again to 1997, and he's writing a weekly column in the Anchorage Press newspaper. Today, he continues that weekly column with the same intention he began with, to introduce people to great Alaskan beer. Okay, time for the Crude Company Men shout-out. These are the people who have subscribed to the Crude Patreon for $50 or more. Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, David North, Crystal Liska, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Shane Robinson, Sharon Liska, and Scott Liska. Thank you to everyone for your support. This podcast wouldn't be possible without you. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to see it continue and get bigger, consider giving it a review on iTunes and subscribing at www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. Okay, back to Dr. Fermento. Jim's been writing about and involved in the Alaska craft beer scene for over two decades now. Back in the early 90s, when he first started covering the scene, Jim says there were only about eight breweries in Alaska. Today, there are over 40. In an article he wrote for the Crude website last year, he called Alaska the beer frontier. We get into some beer suggestions for the curious and the uninitiated beer drinker, how there's a niche for every beer drinker in the world in Alaska, and the time Dr. Fermento was invited to the Playboy Mansion. Before I give too much away, though, let's just get into it. Here's Dr. Fermento. Mike is hot. Mike's hot? Mike's hot. Is it recording? It's recording. That's what that means, dude. Crude conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work! Okay. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Dr. Fermento. It is. Where does that name come from? Well... Uh, the, the roots of the name uh, came from uh, San Francisco. Remember, Doctor Demento, Doctor Demento. It was KFQD. No, not KFQD. Uh, KFRC, San Francisco. And this is a radio station. It, it was a radio station, right? Okay. And I listened to it when I was very young, and um, it's kind of a rock station. But it sort of followed the development of the Fermento character. The character came first, and then the name followed the character. So um, if you want to know about that, um, I was writing for the Anchorage Press. This is my 22nd year of writing weekly columns. And at about year two or three, I got invited to, um, you know, participate in Miners and Trappers. And the people that I participated with uh, wanted to do a newsmaker type deal. They have different categories in there. And so they came up with um, cloning the sheep, uh, Dolly. And so they wanted uh, a bunch of sheep, and then they needed the mad scientist. And I was too tall to be a sheep, so they said, you get to be the mad scientist. So this is where the lab <laughs> coat came from, the weird glasses, the, the uh, shoes, you know, the whole ensemble that was Dr. Fermento, which was a little different back then. I had a... 2,000 milliliter Erlenmeyer flask that I would drink out of the pocket protector, the nerdish type thing, Band-Aid over the glasses. And so the press at the time had said, 
hey, this is the Anchorage Press, correct? The Anchorage Press, okay. right. Yeah, well, um, our local alternative weekly, I guess you'd call it. But um, they had wanted to put little cameo pictures with the columnists, kind of like Herb Cain in the Oakland Tribune, you know, where they, you, you have a little inset with a picture. And there was a lot of pushback at the time. And this was long, this was like 20 years ago. And everybody's like, well, we don't want to do that. And and the uh, publisher editor at the time said, hey, well, it doesn't have to be serious. And so that opened up a lot of creativity. So I went to Miners and Trappers, and I'm at the Village Inn in Anchorage at 2.30 in the morning after that, um, pretty hammered. And my wife is with <laughs> me. And she said, hey, don't forget, tomorrow you've got your photo shoot. You've got to come up with something um, for this cameo for the Anchorage Press. And I'm like, oh, what am I going to do? You know, I was in a panic. And she said, just use that. And I'm like, well, that's cool. I'll just go down there like that. And so I walked into the studio, somebody's photography studio off of 36 somewhere, 36 in Arctic. And the guy just started laughing. He goes, that's classic, you know. And so that turned into what became Dr. Fermento. So that icon stuck with the press for a long time. I used to uh, contribute uh, photographs in support. And this was pre-digital. I'd go out, my column every week consisted of writing the column. There was no internet. Um, I had to bring it down on a floppy disk. I would take my own pictures, take them and get them developed, uh, you know, acetate-based film, and bring the pictures and the column down to the press every week. So lots has changed since then, but the Fermento character is kind of stuck. <laughs> Do you ever still put that costume on? I do. Uh, once in a while, usually by request. Um, you know, I don't just flaunt it around. I'm self-conscious for some reason, but um, I have. Uh, most recently, I uh, did another podcast for Matt Nuska Brewing Company here, and he asked me to bring it and put it on because that had filming as well. So I did that. But, uh, you know, I see a lot of play uh, during Halloween. I get invited to kind of like judge a lot of costume contests. So um, usually around Halloween time, I'll wear it. And uh, I went to do one for the Beartooth Theater Pub. They did one. And it was just this, just this wild party, you know. There was a lot of drinking and a lot of beer going around. And I'm walking up off the stage to get a beer. And this guy's coming down at me, and he's swaying. And I'm swaying a little bit. And he grabs me by the shoulder, and he goes, dude, you're going to win. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. And then after that, we took a cab and we went up to Humpy's, Humpy's Great Alaska Ale House uptown in Anchorage. And I walked in there and they're having a costume thing too. Um, and there's another Dr. Fermento in costume. Oh, no. So it was pretty hilarious. You know, it's, it's been fun. But uh, I don't know. It, it gets around. So it's been it's been a journey. Yeah, yeah, it really has. So you've been writing, as you mentioned earlier, writing a weekly column in the Anchorage Press for twenty two years. Twenty two years. How many columns does that add, add up to? Um, I figured it out. Uh, my my publisher figured it out the other day, and he, he said it's about uh, one point six Gutenberg Bibles. Um, it's well over two and a half million words. Um, I average fourteen twelve to fourteen hundred words a column, but. Uh, Boy, I don't know. That would be 52 times 22, 52 columns times 22. So do the math. Uh, well over 1,000. I know we hit 1,000 at year 21. I think it was year 21 in September. I hit my 1,000th column for him. So 
Beer in Anchorage, beer in Alaska is rich. We have, uh, we just, I think we're the 43rd Alaska brewery will be opening this summer, online brewing company. And uh, so there, it's a target-rich environment. It really is. You wouldn't think that there's times I struggle for material. Um, but really, it's actually having to line things up and schedule what I'm going to write about because there's so much. It's it's great. And I thought, well, um, I, I, I did never ask to write for the press. Um, I was writing about beer long, long before that, but with no purpose and no venue. I wrote the, this is my 27th year of writing the Great Northern Brewers Homebrew Club newsletter, Anchorage's Homebrew Club. And I was the second president in 92, 93. And um, so I've been doing that forever. And they had been through one writer and then they went through another writer very briefly. And the other writer knew me. And as he was leaving, he said, hey, you ought to call that guy, as in me. He says, he, he writes a lot and maybe he would like to do this. And so um, the publisher called me up at the time, Nick Coltman, and said, hey, understand you're a writer. Um, would you be interested in, in writing for our paper? And I thought, wow, that's, that's really insane. Somebody wants me to write for a newspaper. And I said, no, nothing ventured, nothing gained. And he said, well, send me three pieces of your work. Send me two things you've already written, and then send me something original as if you were going to write a column for our paper. And he said, we generally run 750 to 1,000 words, and he gave me all the parameters and stuff. So put pen to paper, sent him two pieces I'd written for the Homebrew Club uh, newsletter, and then um, sent him an original one, and I, and I never heard back. And as writing goes, you're a writer, you know, you think, well, I must suck. And that's, <laughs> that's the closest thing I'm going to get to a reject letter is nothing. So I went about my business. And, and literally three months later, he called me back and said, hey, we, we really like your work. And if you can commit to submitting every Thursday or every Friday for the following Thursday, um, you know, we'll put you on as a contributing columnist. And I swallowed hard. I said, wow, a commitment and all this. And I said, well, to myself if I don't like this, I can just quit. And if they don't like me, they'll just run me off. So a year went by, five years went by, 10 years was a big milestone, 15 years went by. And I said, well, um, that's it. I was a young man then and at 20 years, that's it. And I wasn't sleeping well with that decision. I mean, I would literally wake up and say, I can't not do this in my life. It's such a big part of my life. I, I don't know what I'd do without that pulpit to, you know, extol the virtues of our great beer in this state. So I'm still at it. And I guess unless my liver craps the bed, I'll, uh, I'll keep doing it at least for now. <laughs> <laughs> so it's around 1997 when that first column. Yeah. Fourth of July, published. fourth of July weekend. What does the Alaska craft beer scene look like in 1997? You know, back then, um, we had, I believe, three operating breweries in the state. Alaskan Brewing Company was one of them. And I, oh, gosh, if I can remember the other two. Um, and that but, one's in Juneau, correct? Yeah, Alaskan Brewing Company out of Juneau. Um, but there wasn't a lot in town here. Uh, Bird Creek Brewing Company, uh, that's long gone now, uh, was down uh, off of King Street. And they were around. They had, they had just opened up. Um, and then... Oh, boy, golly, it escapes me what third one is. But I used to have to struggle back then 
And I spent a lot of time writing about commercial beer, just out of the state commercial beer. Um, and I'd feature beer styles like, you know, I'd cover wheat beer. I'd cover back then IPAs weren't even really invented yet. The English style IPAs were around, but they weren't anything what they were today. But it took off and it, uh, and the craft beer movement in uh, the mid-1980s in the United States exploded, uh, Alaska being sort of a lag industry, followed shortly after that. And then breweries just started popping up right and left. Um, and then, you know, fast forward to today, um, here we are. <laughs> and you said in the 40s now, right? Yeah, I think, I believe, um, I used to run the Brewers Guild of Alaska. I did that for four years, but I stepped away from that because I just uh, didn't have the horsepower to put into that. And I have, I do, actually do have a real job. I'm not just a starving artist. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it isn't beer. Um, and then I have another job on top of that. So something had to give. I was writing for the Anchorage Press. I was writing for Celebrator Beer News which is a uh, national, international publication that's out of California, um, but it's a big tabloid, 11 by 17, glossy. And I wrote for them for 15 years. Then they went to an e-zine format, and they, they shrank it, so they, they got rid of the Alaska piece of it. And then I wrote a mirroring beer column for Capital City Weekly for a couple years. But with all that, it was just all-consuming. Oh, and I wrote a blog, um, Fermento's Foamy Rant. I called it The Rant. And that would average eight to 15 pages. I did all the layout, all my own art. Weird. Um, but yeah, I think I, I lost track of your question. Um, online brewing company, which will be opening across from a restaurant called Table Six here in town on Denali um, sometime this spring, should be, if I'm calculating correctly, the 43rd. So considering the scene, right? Considering the scene then and how long you've been into it up until now, where do you see yourself? How do you think you fit into that scene as a whole? It's it's an interesting position. Um, the one thing about it is is being a writer and having been involved in beer well before I started writing for the press, it gave me a lot of exposure to the hospitality industry, which isn't just the beer scene. It's the bars, of course. But, you know, um, hospitality is pretty incestuous in Alaska because we have a small population that services uh, hospitality, which is restaurants, you know, all that stuff. Um, so people move around. So I kind of move with them and they take me into new venues and avenues. What I really like to call myself is an ambassador for good beer. And people often look at me like I'm some kind of beer expert. I'm not. I have a certified palate. I went through the 14-week course and got, you know, through the Beer Judge Certification Program, and I got my palate sensory analyst certified so um, I can professionally evaluate beer. But I'm by no means a brewer. I was a home brewer. And really what it is, you know, I tell people, I said, hey, look, I'm not what you think I am. I'm just a beer drinker with a writing problem. <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, that's really all it is. I love to write and I love beer, so I combine those two two forms. But I do get a lot of exposure in the community, and I like the community, and I love what people are doing up here with beer, especially as the footprint gets smaller. The focus isn't on major, huge production, although they, there are some uh, breweries that are exporting or um, distributing as we become much more geocentric in the smaller footprint format. Um, getting out there and getting to know those brewers is more and more challenging. 
So I'm not as well known as I was 10 years ago, just because um, my exposure in the market has changed. Um, I'm no less enthusiastic about it, but any, any place I can go and talk about the virtues of beer in our state, I'm, I'm right there. So you mentioned the, uh, the Miners and Trappers Ball earlier. Do you have any stories being the type of person that you are um, involved in the partying beer scene? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I have uh, actually uh, way too many of them. So uh, I always look back and I say, what were my milestones? And so it's, it's really important to me. It's not important, but I think it's big bragging rights that it's my dollar that's on the wall of Humpy's. So when Humpy's Great Alaskan Ale House, an institution that turns 25 on June 13th or 17th this year, big party, I was hanging out at Harry's, which was in Midtown, and Harry's was in the ba- basement of what used to be the Key Bank building on uh, between Northern Lights and C, uh, A and C there. And I would go downstairs and I'd drink in the bar because there was really back then only really two respectable tap lines in Anchorage, one of which was Coots, and the other, for whatever reason, which was Harry's, which was a mid-scale uh, restaurant. It's nothing right now. I don't even think they have a restaurant anymore. After it was Harry's, it became Ruby's. Okay, okay. And Ruby's went away. And I, I'm not sure what's in there now, but I don't believe they have a dining facility in that building. But I'd go in there and I got, you know, I become a bar fly anywhere there's good beer pretty quick. And there was a, a server in there, and his name, name is Jim Maurer, and he's still around. And over time, I got to know uh, Jim pretty well. And, you know, things happened in there that was just like you wouldn't think about today. Um, when uh, Portland Honey Ale probably today would be considered very pedestrian and very bland by today's beer standards, when they released that, they released it uh, there at Harry's, and you couldn't get in the parking lot. And then they did McTarnahan's, and you couldn't get in the parking lot. And Alaskan came out, and it was just crazy. But Maurer got to know me, and one day he leaned over the bar in there, and he said, hey. He said, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you in on a little secret. And I said, oh, yeah, what's that? And he said, um, we're going to open uh, Alaska's first real ale house in downtown Anchorage. And I'm going, wow, that's crazy. And he said, yeah, it's going to be an alehouse. The focus of it is going to be beer. It's not going to be food first. It's not going to be whatever. It's really going to be all about beer. So I started going up there at night thinking, who in their right mind, imagine this, who in their right mind would put a, a, a alehouse or a bar type of a, arrangement in downtown Anchorage? That's where they roll up the sidewalks at night and all the crime comes out, you know, by the bus station. And uh, And what year was this? Uh, well, 25 years ago this year, so um, I don't know. Anyway, I'm not that fast with the math, <laughs> but a quarter of a century ago. And so I started hanging out. I'd ride down there from Muldoon on my bicycle. I'd take the, the bike trails and come out in Anchorage, and I'd bring my bike in there, and I'd help him, you know, do the grunt work, um, him and Billy Opinski uh, that opened Humpies. And then it was so exciting to me that they were going to have, oh, my gosh, they started with like 36 beers on tap just unheard of. I was like a kid in a candy store. So I had to be the first one there. So I took time off of work, went downtown and waited for an hour 
in front of the door to be the first customer. I just really wanted to do it right. Was there anybody else in line? Just my wife. Okay, just you two. <laughs> <laughs> they opened the doors with a no short fanfare. Line. Yeah, and they looked around like, oh, it's you guys. <laughs> <laughs> so I came in, had a pint of beer and ate and left, and that my dollar is still framed, framed there. And I've been through many epic parties at Humpy's, and we can talk about those some more too. Um, and so having your dollar on a wall in a bar um, is kind of a neat thing to me. Well, it's a piece of history. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It kind of goes with the building. And, and so, and then it was in 2000, out of the blue, I had just taken um, my PTO from work and I was kind of out of PTO, uh, paid time off. And uh, I get this weird fax and this fax comes out. And, a fax? Yeah, a fax, if you can remember those. <laughs> and I pull it off of there, and I look at it, and I, Playboy, Playboy Magazine, Playboy Mansion, Hugh Hefner, signed. This has got to be bullshit. And I looked at it, and I threw it aside. I said, some, some kind of spam thing, you know. And then I kept picking it up and looking at it, and it had a phone number. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll give it a call. I just, you know, nothing ventured, nothing gained. So I called and they get the Playboy Mansion in Beverly Hills and it was legit. And they go, we want you to come down as Dr. Fermento. And we're no gonna, way. Yeah. We're going to do a release of re-release back then of what was Pete's Wicked Ale, if you can remember that. Um, one of the four running craft beers in the United States that kind of got has been. And they want to reinvigorate the brand. And Pete Sloshberg, who had invented Pete's Wicked Ale as a home brewer and then turned it into a commercial entity, was going to be there. And there was a bunch of beer uh, people, VPs, and they said, oh, Fermento's got to be there and you got to wear your costume. So I'm like, yeah, well, I'm in. Uh, slight uh, problem is I didn't have any time off left from work. So I walked into my CEO and I brought the piece of paper and I slid it across his desk and I go, uh, hey, boss, uh, so I got this. And they all knew I was writing, you know, they, it wasn't ever an issue at work. And I said, they want me to come down and, and go to the Playboy Mansion. And I go, but I don't, uh, I don't really know what to do because I don't have any time off left. And he looked down at it and he was kind of taciturn. He pushes his glass up on his nose and he reads the facts and he goes, I'll fire you if you don't go. <laughs> so that was that was the first challenge, and I made it past that. And then the second challenge was finding somebody to go with. I asked everybody I knew, hey, man. I asked my wife. I said, you want to go to the Playboy Mansion? She goes, no way. And she, was, she wasn't going to go. I asked every friend I had, uh, no, I don't think I want to do that. I go, Come on, man. This is like all expense paid. This is Beverly Hills. Yeah, what kind of friends do you have? Yeah, I know. Well, they must be higher than me. <laughs> They're not in low places like me or something. But anyway, in the end, it turned out I asked Billy Opinski, one of the co-owners of Humpy's, Great Alaska Ale House, where my dollar is. And he said, oh, hell yeah, I'm in. Let's go. So we took off. And it was, it was pretty short notice by then. So we paid an exorbitant airfare and got on the plane and we flew into LA and we had to fly in three days early because of connections and all that. And we fly in and we get out. First thing we do is walk into the bar in the, in uh, LAX and get a, you know, big 22 ounce, uh, overpriced $11, 22 ounce Sam Adams, Boston lager. And we're sitting there at the bar and Billy goes, do you have anything to do in LA for three days? And I said, no, because the beer scene hadn't really hit L.A. yet. 
And he said, you know, for $76 round trip, we can just fly up to San Francisco and be back down here in time for that. Oh, my God, did we ever get out of control in San Francisco. It turned into <laughs> one of the most epic drunk parties I've ever been to with another guy. We just tore it up, did the whole San Francisco scene, got back on the plane, and then uh, headed back down to the soiree at the at the mansion. And pretty much everything what I thought it would be. Um, oh, the man show was there, and they had the trampoline, you know, and they had the girls jumping on the trampoline, and all the Playboy bunnies were there, and I swam in the grotto and got my pictures taken with Dr. Fermento. The only, one of the few covers I made and both Celebrator Beer News and the Anchorage Press at the same time. You know, it was a big deal. So that was another uh, pretty noteworthy uh, uh, beer milestone for me. Did you meet Hugh Hefner? Yeah, very briefly. Very. He made like a cameo appearance and, you know, the house coat, the whole deal. And it was like a big crowd, and then he disappeared. But uh, I never did shake his hand. But it was cool. Um, it was cool just to say I did it. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So did you ever find out how they heard about you all the way up here in Alaska? No, I never did. Um, but I, it probably was more connected with Celebrator Beer News, which had a lot more exposure, obviously, in the lower 48 than the Anchorage Press. But it's funny. Um, occasionally when I travel, my presence will pre-announce itself somehow, and I'll go in somewhere, and I'll have, whenever I travel, I have a very serious beer agenda, even for work. I will schedule work. Travel. Still to this day? To this day. Okay. Absolutely. And I look up, sometimes I'll call ahead, and, you know, if there's some interesting, something more than just taking a tour of a brewery, I've been through four billion of those, but, you know, if it's like a all oak age thing or sour beers or something, you know, but people will find out, and they'll know and they'll go, oh my God, Fermento's in my bar. It happened in Nashville. And I'm like, how do you people know about me? <laughs> so what's it like showing up to a bar and getting that treatment as Dr. Fermento outside of Alaska? It's humbling because I don't, I, I, I sort of want, I don't necessarily like to go in incognito, but then again, I don't like to be treated like a celebrity. You know, I don't like thinking, people thinking, well, you know, um, I, I've often said, hey, I'm one of the few adult males that doesn't pay for much of what he drinks and writes off the rest, but that's not my mission. So um, I'm always, you know, no, no, let me get that. Let me get that. You know, when they want to comp everything, I've been there for three hours and, you know, whatever. But uh, yeah, no, it's, it's kind of cool. Um, it's kind of a cool thing. I mean, who, who wouldn't think that? Yeah, no, it sounds great. You know, um, being a journalist myself, uh, one thing that, that I would think is how do you, um, well, you kind of just alluded to it. You said that, no, I'll pay for that, which cuts down on the um, conflict of interest. Right. So it doesn't influence your writing or your opinion. Do you try to do that? Yes. I know of other aspiring writers in the industry, beer, and a couple that are even here that haven't really gone very far, but they're like, oh, can you get me comped? Can you get me in? I know you're. I know you're getting in for free, right? And I go, well, yeah, you know, um, certain events like that. But I, I don't, you know, if I if they offer, you know, like a hundred dollar a plate dinner or a beer and barley wine fest or something like that. But I pay my way forward with that. I write about it and I'm part of it and I do, you know, I I do things for it. But at the same time, if if it's not, I gladly pay. 
I'm not about, I'm not writing about beer to get free beer. I get a lot of free beer. There's no doubt about that. Product samples, distributors load me up all the time. The breweries load me up all the time. And that's fine and good. Um, I have a, I have a uh, thing that I put on social media, my Facebook page and on uh, Instagram called uh, State of the Reefer. And when, when I get all the stuff, you know, my refrigerator, my beer refrigerator is always never, or it's never not full of beer. And I always take a picture of it and stay to the reefer, you know, because it always changes. It's a mosaic of craft beer. So the reefer is your refrigerator. refrigerator my outside. Okay. So it has nothing to do with weed. Nothing to do with weed. No. Yeah. But <laughs> okay. it, it's funny. It's because I call it state of the reefer. It always raises eyebrows. And uh, so what happens is the product samples will get pushed back because I'm not organized. I'll put the beers in, then I'll face them. I'll turn all the labels for the front because I love the look of it. And then every now and then I go, well, what am I going to have today? And I'll just put my hand over my eyes and I'll reach way back and I'll find something. I'll pull it out, you know, and I go, oh yeah, I remember when I got that one, you know? So, um, but yeah, it's not about a free ride. I don't think that, uh, I'm very passionate about my writing. Um, I enjoy it. And I just don't, I don't do it because I think anybody owes me something. In fact, I tell the press all the time, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very privileged to have been in that position for as long as I have. And the press, Anchorage Press struggled for a number of years on and off. And I'd gone a couple months without getting paid. They always tried to make up a little bit of it, but it wasn't that. I said, hey, don't worry about it, man. I'm just, I really like having this space. Mm -hmm. I really like it that people who get off a plane in Anchorage and have never been here before, maybe pick it up and they open to the beer column in the press and go, oh, wow, I really want to try that beer. Mm-hmm. Um, I took some writing. I minored in English in college, but I never really studied writing so much. But I remembered a couple of things. You have to have a writing objective. You have to know who your audience is, you know, and they say, well, writing is designed to do three things. You know, you're going to persuade, inform, or entertain, okay? But every time you sit down to write, you should do so with a purpose. So what do you want your readers to go away with is been the single thing that I've had for 22 years with the press when I did, wrote the very first column was, I want people to go away thirsty for good beer. And that has really shaped my writing because that's why you don't ever hear me writing about uh, shitty beer in this town, and there's some of it. So you just avoid writing about it? Yeah, I'll let it get better. I'll just let it get better. And when it's good enough to write about it, I'll write about it. I'll feature it. I'll usually feature a new brewery. Every time a new brewery opens, I love to scoop, be the first to cover a new brewery opening and all that. But I'm very non-judgmental about the product until it gets to a certain level. I, I think that's really great, actually. I've um, I've always said about critics that if if they just didn't critique something shitty, then that is a critique in and of itself. Right. So if you're just focusing on the good stuff, yeah. people will read about that. And, you know, because what do you do with a shitty review? Yeah. You well, know, you just, I mean, not you, but as a reader, what would I do with a shitty review? Right. It's like, oh, okay, well, I guess that beer sucks. Yeah. And, and, and that's not the intent, and it's not to glorify bad beer. Um, bad beer exposes itself very quickly. The bar for quality beer in this town is incredibly high, higher than I would say even Portland anymore. Um, but the other, re- you know, the other reason of having that writing objective of making people thirsty for good beer keeps me about writing about politics, keeps me from writing about 
alcohol tax and all the other bullshit that happens in this community that's unfounded and pisses me off. But it's not my it's not my place to you know to write about that. I don't I don't write about orgies I know that have happened in mash tons in local breweries that uh, people have used brewing equipment as a hot tub and all the other juicy industry tidbits that would make for great reading, but would very quickly alienate me from the people that I love and respect for what they do. And it's like, hey, you know, I'd rather just have somebody pick that piece of paper up and say, I think I want to go to that event. He made it sound like it's going to be really fun or, wow, he must really like that beer. And it has effect, I guess. Humpies has told me before, hey, can you give us some heads up if you're going to write about this limited beer we have because it'll be gone like that. And so it, it, the, the press does get the readership that puts the consumer in front of the publican. So. so you mentioned people who just get off the plane, you know, and they pick up the newspaper in the Anchorage airport. Maybe someone like myself who doesn't really drink a lot of different kinds of beer or maybe even somebody that is just visiting Alaska, what would be a beer you would suggest to them or myself? Well, usually I won't, I won't go as far as suggesting a beer unless I know. I'll, I'll usually probe a little bit more to find out what, they, what, they're, what are you really after. You know, that's the question that I always ask because it's a broad tapestry out here. Um, if you tried to get through every beer that's produced in the state of Alaska, I think there's probably well over a thousand of them. You're not going to get to every brewery because they're geographically dispersed. So what people are generally looking for if they've just gotten off a plane and they want to know is they want an experience, not necessarily a beer, a specific beer. That's been my experience with this. And so I do get email, quite a bit of email from people traveling to the state that have read the press or somebody's recommended that they get in touch with me and say, hey, I've only got eight hours and I think I might be able to go to two places by the time I take a cab and get there and whatever, what should I do? And right now, again, um, every beer is a piece of history and time. It's a snapshot in time. But I say, if you really want to know what beer drinking feels like in the state, go to Midnight Sun Brewing Company. And this is by no means an endorsement. Um, I love that brewery to death. Um, that little scar right there on my thumb is when they opened, I'm up on a 20-foot ladder putting sheetrock screws in, and it slipped. So I got a little bit of my blood in every brewery up here one way or another. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think that Anchor, or I'm sorry, uh, Midnight Sun Brewing Company really embodies beer spirit in Alaska. Their packaging is beer spirit oriented, adventure spirit oriented. Um, the people that hang out there, you've got a broad, eclectic mix. Um, and their beers are unusual, and they stand out. If somebody says, hey, um, I want classic, authentic styles of beer, who's doing it best in your state? Probably King Street. You want a, a, a rock-solid IPA, not over the top, not a fruit bomb, not a pine bomb, but a rock-solid stylistic IPA a rock-solid Bavarian-style Hefeweizen, and a Schwartz beer, yeah, go down there. Um, if you want sour and eclectic, Turnigan Brewing Company. Um, if you want uh, cutting-edge, new wave, over-the-top, non-defined, um, so far out in front of the rest of the world, Anchorage Brewing Company. So I spend a lot of time getting to know the audience that's asking the question because I really want to tailor you know, what they want to go away with. And you mentioned earlier that, of course, it's about the beer. But you also said it's also about the atmosphere. Correct. And I think in 
asking those questions to that person, you're also not only asking what type of beer do you like, but what type of atmosphere would this person like? Yeah. I, I ask them, I'll usually ask, well, what do you like to drink? Where are you from? And what are you used to drinking? And, you know, what do you, what do you want to do? And are you looking at sitting down and drinking the entire line? Or do you want to have one or two beers there and then go somewhere else? Because that really shapes... Somebody that wants to sit down and drink the line wants an immersive experience. And that's going to be much more focused. Listen, go to Glacier uh, Brewhouse if you want fine English ales. Go in there and walk through and see if you can get them to pull out some of their barley wines. Um, if you want um, just a really lively, happening, vibrant, jivey, kind of groovy place, 49th State Brewing Company in Anchorage. Um, so there's, there is a niche for every drinker in the world, in Alaska, but I really want them to have the best experience. So I try to match beer, people, and location. What kind of person likes barley wine? You know, barley wine, I would venture to say not so much anymore. It might be one of those acquired tastes. Um, a barley wine by style is a huge beer, um, typically. Uh, They're called barley wines because before strains of yeast evolved to the point where um, yeast became more high alcohol tolerant, um, yeast typically back then would commit suicide at 8%. So the yeast, through the process of fermentation, every molecule of water goes through a cell of yeast, um, profoundly defines the beer. But alcohol is a toxin. Alcohol is poison. And so the, the yeast cells would produce enough alcohol to, to commit suicide at 8%. And so you didn't see too many beers that were above that threshold. So what brewers did to make stronger beers is they used wine yeast. Wine yeast is tolerant up in the 12s and whatnot. And so they called it barley for the beer and wine for, you know, the fermentation uh, style and, and, and strength. So that's where barley wines came from. There, the, the barley wine style has morphed um, incredibly over the years. Um, um, my favorite, there's American-style barley wines and there's English-style. The English-style is the traditional, and those are characterized by sort of a deep, malt-forward, think of flavor compounds that would remind you of treacle, tobacco, uh, caramel, chocolate, coffee. Mix that all together in various combinations, although there are none of those compounds in a barley wine. It's all the yeast and the malt. And put that in a 12%, 13% beer, and you're kind of talking about a barley wine, typically a darker style, although there are lighter barley wines out there. But because they are expensive both in cost to make and they're expensive in fermentation space because the better barley wines are aged, uh, drinking them right when they come off, you know, like an, uh, an ale, 10 or 12 days of in the process would be maybe normal for an ale, lagers take quite a bit longer, but barley wines need to sit for a while so that all of that stuff can blend. And you could be having barley wines in tanks for years, literally years. And so Glacier Brewhouse uh, started out before I think too many other breweries did in the state. And they created this wall of wood underneath. Nobody knows there's a whole nother complex under Glacier Brewhouse. Um, it's a secret room. Yeah. And the wall of wood's down there. And so there's rows and rows and rows of these large <clears throat> oak casks that the brewers 
divert the beer to, and they let them snooze on this oak for a year, two, three, five, whatever it is. And every year, um, 10 days of barley wine comes out in December. And I would challenge any other brewery in the world to boast that they are able to put on upwards of 50 different barley wines at once, which is incredible. So um, they can be a little off-putting to the uninitiated palate because they're strong. A good barley wine isn't necessarily alcoholic. In other words, you don't feel the heat and it's not in your face, but they're way forward in flavor, way forward in character that some people aren't used to. Not so much anymore. Um, the American palate has certainly matured where um, I d I've done beer tastings uh, for the whale's tail in the hotel cap and cook downtown. And they would ask me to come in once or twice a year and say, hey, can you walk through these seven different local beers that we're going to pair? Now, if they did an all-Alaskan brewing company, they bring in the Alaskan brewer to talk about all Midnight Sun, they bring in the Midnight Sun brewer. But if they're doing wanting to expose people to a lot of stuff, they'd bring me in. And so I always have great fun because, you know, beer is still considered the paradigm of the blue collar drink, whereas wine's the white collar. So the Captain Cook is probably more wine centric. So their clientele are probably more wine centric, just my theory. So what I love to do is I bring in a lot, you know, I'll, I'll go in, there'll be 20, 30 people and I'll, I'll ask them right up front. I said, so um, what does everybody in here drink? And, you know, what's, what's your go-to beer? And it'd be Bud Light. Oh yeah, Miller Genuine Draft, Coors Light, you know, somebody had, uh, somebody else would say Line and Kugels or whatever it was from all over the United States. And I said, okay, that's good to know. I'm going to walk you through some incredibly flavorful, very diverse local craft beer. I'm going to talk about each one. The chef has artfully prepared them with these dishes, and it's really fun and really interactive. And 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 I'll ask people throughout. I go, what do you think? And they go, wow, that's um, wow. You know, and you can tell some of that wow isn't a positive wow. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, wow, that's a little bit too much for me. And, Especially you know, if they're coming from Bud Light. Yeah, well, and that's the point. And so at the very end, my favorite thing to do is go, oh, wait, I've got one more beer. I've got a feature tonight. Um, yeah, I forgot about this one. Let me Let me bring the final beer out. And so I'll literally bring them out like a Coors Light, you know, without the bottle, and I'll bring them out in glasses. And I'll go, now what I want everybody to do is what I taught you to do throughout this tasting. Aroma, appearance, okay, flavor, mouthfeel, and overall impression. And they'll serve it up, and you get all these weird looks. And I go, okay, somebody describe how you're reacting to this beer. Well, there's nothing to it. It's really thin. It's like watery. There's no flavor, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I go, well, congratulations. That's a Bud Light. <laughs> and the light goes on. And I just love that, you know. So, but the palettes change. So our uh, high-end, diverse, eclectic beers are uh, definitely more in favor. Turnigan Brewing Company makes almost all sour ale. Who in their right mind would drink a purposely sour beer? Mm -hmm. You know, there is something that definitely takes some adjustment on the palate. But they're singularly one of the most crisp, refreshing beers you can put in your mouth. They're great palate cutters. If you're having a heavy meal with multiple courses or whatever, even tacos, think Mexican food that just bites to the palate, the salsas, the spices. Serve somebody a sour ale. It's going to hit the palate with a lot more welcome because the sourness is going to cut the coating in the mouth and reset the palate to zero, and you come out with a fresh palate. So there's a, you know, there's a purpose, but there are a lot of eclectic beers out there right now, and they're in favor, especially in our town. You know, 
I was wondering if if you know, you probably do, of any other beers in Alaska that are doing certain things. Like I remember I picked up a uh, Alaskan winter beer and want the purple label. Mm-hmm. And on the back of it, if I remember correctly, it says that a town or a village outside of Juneau uh, will all go and collect spruce needles. And then Alaskan Brewing will include that that taste within that beer. And so it's like of Alaska. Correct. Are, are there any other yeah. beers in Alaska like that? Yeah, well, um, a lot of locally inspired beers, um, but in particular, I'll focus on what you just talked about if a little bit, if I may. That's uh, Alaskan does that. It's Gustavus that's across the channel, and they go over to that locale, and it's a community day. The kids turn out, parents, adults. It's almost like being in Europe, and they're marching through the fields, and, you know, you picture it with the kind of the low-hanging fog and clouds and the, the, the spruce to be used in beer. Um, has to be at exactly the right time, and you can you can judge by where the tip is. They harvest them. The kids are paid by the bale or by quantity of what they pick, and Alaskan pays them. That's brought over, and then every year um, they use different uh, amounts and different variety, not so much different varieties, but it's Sitka spruce tips um, to make that beer. And just for the record, for those of you that missed Alaskan spruce beer last year, it wasn't out. Um, they use their cranberry beer as their winter seasonal last year, but they're going back to they're going back to the winter ale this year, which is is, is a favorite around here. Haynes Brewing Company, same thing. Um, Haynes makes a spruce beer, and Baranoff Island Brewing Company, down in that part of Alaska, southeastern Alaska, in our Panhandle, the Sitka spruce is prominent. Um, the tips are superb, and so it's a local feature that those breweries like to put in their beer. Um, Ted Rosenvig at Turnigan Brewing Company sources most of the souring fruits that he uses in his beers locally, um, you know, to celebrate uh, whatever whatever can be locally sourced here. The problem with it is that in other brewing locales, both um, nationally and globally, um, there's a bigger there, there's a bigger um, plate to pick from because. People can actually grow barley in the lower 48. They can actually grow hops in the lower 48. We don't have the climate conducive. So the only natural ingredient to beer up here is water. And, uh, you know, so everything else tends to have to be imported. Sure, Delta Junction is experimented with malting. It hasn't gone very well. Um, You know, and people have tried to grow hops. I grow my own hops, but they're ornamental. and, of course, you can use local ingredients, honey. Alaskan's honey is some of the best in the world. So um, you see a lot of honey-infused beers. Uh, again, back to Alaskan Brewing Company, their newest beer, um, Alaska Blonde Ale with Honey, uses uh, honey in it, you know. So, um, yeah, a lot of you see birch beers are popular up here. What's the weirdest ingredient well, that you've seen? Well, I'll tell you, <laughs> one that doesn't hit my palate perfectly is Bleeding Heart Brewing Company makes a beet beer, and they use local beets. And to me, some people love beets. To me, beets taste like dirt. They taste like the earth, and it doesn't fit favor with me in beer. Um, what else have I seen? You know, chili beer. There's a lot of people that infuse, you know, chilies in beer, and I'm okay with that to a degree. Just about every fruit. Uh, or every fruit and vegetable imaginable has been put in a beer. I don't care for cucumber beer. Um, 
you know, I've drank some of that and my notes have one word, why. <laughs> <laughs> Do you like cucumber water though? Uh, I, I, I really don't care for that as much either. Okay. I mean, I can drink it and I like cucumbers. It's not that I have an issue with it, but I don't like ice cream in my beer either. <laughs> you know, chocolate in beer, coffee in beer, you know, you know, the two stupidest questions, I always run through this, that people ever ask me, um, thinking I'm some kind of beer guru is what's your favorite beer? Number one. And then number two, if you I ever... didn't ask that, did I? No. Okay. <laughs> no, you're safe. <laughs> and the second one is, have you ever been to Germany? And I'm like, where did that come into the conversation? Why, why are you asking me if I've ever been to Germany? Oh, because of the beer. What about it? Well, they have the silly purity law over there called Reinheitsgebot, and the 1560 German purity law that says only four things can go in beer, malt, water, hops, and yeast. Well, that takes away chocolate beers. That takes away just about everything that the inspiring Yanks created. We have much more vibrant beer over here than they do in Europe right now. All the Europeans are breaking tradition and looking at U.S. beers for inspiration. Um, but anyway, I digress. Um, so, yeah, there are uh, weird things. People have put fish in beer. Um, you know, Have you had that one? I've had fish beer. <clears throat> You can get the flavor of it, salmon beer, and, and I don't see a lot of it. And it typically, a lot of that comes from the home brewing side. You infuse fish oil and put a whole fish in it. Um, another interesting one to talk about, again, Alaskan Brewing Company. Very, very difficult one for the uninitiated palate and very popular up here is smoke beer. So Alaskan smoke porter, um, for all of its weirdness that people associate with it, is an outstanding beer. It is entirely in your face with almost a tar-like, very deep pine resin, alderwood, heavy alderwood smoke. I mean, smoky, really smoky, um, as say compared to 49 States Brewing Company Smoke Martin. Okay, much lighter presentation of the smoke. But <clears throat> you, take a, you take somebody that's uninitiated or a tourist and say, hey, I want you to try this beer. That's where you almost don't get the wow with the head back. You almost get the gack and spit it out if they're not ready for what they're going to taste. But they do that with the smoky beer, but then not with the fish beer. Well, I haven't, I, I haven't seen too many people drink fish beer. Okay. So. <laughs> but uh, anyway, um, the Alaskan Smoke Porter is singularly the, the highest garnered metal beer in the history of the Great American Beer Festival, attesting to the true prowess and, and uniqueness of that beer. It's just an incredible beer. Um, so palates mature. I certainly didn't start drinking craft beer and neither did you. Um, we started drinking, I'm, I'm going to date myself here, but the uh, high school kegger, you know, 15 and a half gallon with a pump, red plastic solo cups, and uh, you're firing for effect, dude. Yeah. I mean, if you don't go home throwing up, you didn't have a good party, right? <laughs> Um, that's changed. People are drinking less beer, but better beer. And I think what's really shaping our society, all of beer society, not just Alaska, but our pre-legal beer drinkers, the high school kids of today that are partying in their backyards or, you know, out having keggers in the woods, wherever they do it, are just as likely to get handed a red Dixie cup filled up with a locally produced high-end craft beer as they are a Bud Light, a Miller or a cheap product. So people are emerging into the market with higher expectations every year. And this is why there's such an explosive popularity in craft beer, one of the contributing factors mm -hmm. that uh, the palate's changing. Americans' palate is shifting, so. Yeah. And it's neat to be along for the ride, you know. 
we've talked a lot about beer, and I think I uh, I, I have a question uh, that's going to kind of switch gears. Sure. If you don't mind. No, not at all. Okay. So you wrote an article for the Crude website last year about how you got into writing a weekly beer column and how 20 years later, this was last year, 21 years later, you've become entrenched within the beer community. Also in that article, you mentioned your dad was a recovering alcoholic. That's correct. Was there or has there ever been any personal qualms about concerning much of your life with beer? No. Um, I was the only academic person other than my father and my family. Um, And so my father always respected that I followed his footsteps into writing. Now, he wasn't a writer, but he was an avid reader. And I remember a couple of things that, uh, uh, you know, come to mind. The very first sip of beer I ever had was one that was handed to me by my dad. And at the time, he was an alcoholic, um, but he handed me, we were sitting on the, we were sitting on the back picnic table. I was very young, very young, um, maybe in the six or seven year old range if that. And my dad and my family was going through bankruptcy and we were broke. And my dad was in the dumps. He was just in the dumps and it was in California and he'd never forget it. Every night he'd go out in the backyard and he'd sit on the table, part of the picnic table with feet on the steps. And he'd just look off into the distance, you know, and it was a weird thing when I was a kid. I even noticed that something's not right. And I'd go out and sit with him. I'd literally, I'd go out and just sit with him and he wouldn't say much. My dad wasn't, he was pretty taciturn and not a talker. And one day he looked down at me and he just said, try this. And uh, do you remember your first sip of beer? Um, I think I do. Yeah. Yeah. It probably wasn't a positive experience and it generally never is. It's that, oh my God, this is a foreign substance I just put in my body. The hair on the crack of your ass stands up and you get that. <laughs> <laughs> you remember that? Yeah. I was like, whoa, what did I just do? And I gave him the beer back and he never said another word about it. And the time, at the time that he died, um, you know, that was fully years into when I'd been writing. And he used to follow me. He read me in the press because um, you could get it online and whatnot. And I wrote about I wrote about that experience at the time of his passing. But uh, I would go down to California as he got older and as I got older. Um, you know, if you go back 22 years, I was a younger man. I was in my late 30s. And I would buy all the beer I wanted. I was okay to drink it. I never never drank it in a band and I never got shitty. You know, my brother turned out to be an alcoholic too, I guess. And so his wife made him quit. I don't think he ever wanted to, but we drink out in the garage and I could bring the beer in the house. There was, it was never a big deal because I was a responsible drinker. Have I always been, am I always a responsible drinker? Fuck no, (laughs) no, no, no. I can party with the best of them. But I restrained myself to the audience because I'm a beer ambassador. And so my dad always respected it. Never had a problem with it. So, How do you think that you turned out that way, your dad turned out the way he did, and then your brother turned out the way he did? Chemical dependency is a weird thing. Alcohol affects different people differently. Am I not an alcoholic? I can't say no to that question. I can't say yes to it either. Define an alcoholic. What is an alcoholic? Is an alcoholic that has a chemical de- dependency to a certain substance? That's probably part of it. Is there a social addiction? That's certainly a part of it. Um, I don't know where I'd fit on that spectrum. I've never tried to not drink beer. Now, I've gone 
periods of time where it's been inaccessible. I've been up in the godforsaken badlands of Prudhoe Bay where it's verboten to have, in fact, illegal up there. And then I've been remote where there wasn't beer and it didn't seem to have any negative effect. But I don't know if that's the true, um, you know, delineator as to whether you're an alcoholic or not. Um, I think that I have the ability to control my consumption. If I'm going to overconsume, I generally know I'm doing it and it, it's because I want to. Um, it's not because I have to. So I'd like to say no. <laughs> if there's any credibility to that. <laughs> so in that same article you wrote for Crude, you said that writing a weekly column and always having a looming deadline competes with other life goals of yours. If you didn't have a weekly column, what goals would you be pursuing? Retirement. No. Um, you know, aside from my beer writing, um, you know, I have a full-time job and it is more than a full-time job. And I didn't expect to be in this position this late in life, but it happened. Um, I got uh, uh, turned in from being a director to a vice president. And with that, all the, you know, picked up seven companies instead of one, et cetera. And so that's all consuming there. <clears throat> in fact, I was at work this morning and I'll go back to work as you heard me have a conversation prior to starting the podcast. Um, and then the other thing that I'm involved in is Hope Mining Company and no endorsement for Hope Mining Company. Um, Hope Mining Company is a small placer mining outfit in Hope uh, on the other side of Alaska's Turnigan Arm, about 14 air miles from Anchorage, 89 miles as, as, as the road wiggles. Um, and I've been down there for 24 years and I'm not a miner. I don't make muddy water, um, but I've worked with the uh, claim owner, um, the guy that owns Hope Mining Company, he's 74, um, to do all of the technical writing, work with the Forest Service, work with the DEC, the DNR for the water and the permitting and everything it takes to materially affect things that happen in the wilderness. And so that is a release to me. I get to go down there. I get to be if people run into me uh, down in Hope, sometimes there's a double take because they think they're looking at Dr. Fermento or Jim Roberts, and then they have to look again. Who's this guy that smells like diesel, has sawdust packed in every crevice, torn, tattered jeans, you know, and um, it's because I really, really love drinking beer in the woods. I really love that hard, harsh survivalist, off the grid, no electricity, no power, no running water, lifestyle for two days to get me out of Los Anchorage um, to get that little dose of sanity. And that's kind of where I want to retire. So my goal is to eventually step away from writing about beer. Um, I had always said that writing for the Anchorage Press has been a long, protracted practice run at writing fiction, which is what I want to do. And you've edited my work. And as I've told you before, you know, I used to get back edits um, and what that is, is I'd get the document with the changes and I learn and I learn and I learn. And every year on my year anniversary around 4th of July, I'll just randomly kind of scroll down my thousand columns and pick one 10 years ago, 15 years ago and read it and go, how has my writing changed? What's different? You know? So it's been a gift uh, all these years to have my work professionally edited and learn from that experience so that fiction's a whole different animal but I think it's a great thing. I picture myself off the grid down there in Hope. I have five acres of my own private property there as well as working um, on the mine. 
I have my mining camp down there, which is where I stay because I don't have any built on my lot. But I picture myself kicking the embers, making homebrew, and writing fiction. So you're in hope. You're retired. What are you writing about for fiction? I'm not sure. Um, <clears throat> I know what I'm inspired by. I mean, I, I have... I'll read books, not because they're um, good books, but because the writing's good. Um, fundamentally, one of the most boring books humans could read is The Great Gatsby. But I'll read it again and again and again because F. Scott Fitzgerald's mastery of the English language is, is divine. Same thing with Steinbeck, some of the classics. Um, more recently, I'm, I'm really inspired by Augustin Burroughs. Think... Um, Oh, I'm trying to think. Uh, Running with Scissors. Don't mm. watch the movie. Um, read the book. The book is one of the only books that's ever made me stop and laugh out loud. I've read the book and watched the movie. Yeah. So you know. Yeah, yeah, I do. Augustin Burroughs is a phenomenal writer. Is that is that the, the movie where, uh, I forget the actor's name, but he says something about his masturbatorium. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's the, <laughs> the doctor. The, they, they live with a shrink. It's just a crazy, crazy story. Yeah. And it's true. Yeah, yeah. So what Burroughs does is he writes autobiographically somewhat, and then he's done some straight fiction and stuff. So I'm inspired by him. Wally Lamb, I think she's come undone, which heralded um, globally as how can a male – so get inside of a female person and write so eloquently about what it's like to be a woman. Incredible writing, just incredible writing. Ann Tyler, I like her, but I don't know. Um, I have a few what I call starts. Um, I've read um, Stephen King's On Writing as to how a guy that can crank out a prolific amount of work over the span of a number of years, you know, just how do you write like that? How do you write so well like that? Mm -hmm. um, bird by Bird, I've read that, which is on writing, um, you know, how to write. But uh, I don't know. I think it will be a blend of beer. It will be a blend of mining. It will be a blend of Alaska. It'll be a blend of uh, dark secrets that I have that I'll get the courage to bring to the printed page. Um I'm excited about it. I just don't know where it will go. So. That sounds great. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, it's been great having you on. Do you have anything else you'd like to add before? Think globally, drink locally. Our local brewers um, love your support, but um, you shouldn't have to go there to support them. They stand on their own. Look at every beer as a different interpretation, as a story, because every beer is a story and it's inspired by somebody that wanted to make it. And enjoy what's here. More to come. Right on. Thank you, Jim. You're welcome. For more information about how you can support local grassroots journalism, go to www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Intro music was produced by Alcoda Beats. 